Our Father in heaven, I ask for your own sake that you would help us to understand your Holy Bible. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to uh, begin interviewing evangelicals that have studied Adventism and rejected it, you would find a number of them that would attack you on the issue of the seal of God. In our evangelistic series, we teach that the seal of God is the Sabbath. In the Bible, there's not a single verse anywhere from Genesis to Revelation that associates the word seal with the word Sabbath. However, there are three passages in the New Testament, two in Ephesians and one in Colossians, that do associate the word seal with something. Let's look at them. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and looking at verse 13. Ephesians 1 and verse 13. It says, In whom, that is in Jesus, you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I would like you to notice, at least in that passage, that it doesn't look like the sealing was coincident with the receiving of the truth. That there was, it was a later experience. What did the passage say? You trusted in him, that you heard, and that in whom after that you believed, you were sealed. And maybe it's a question we might have in our mind, well, maybe the seal of God was one thing in the first century and something else in our days. But look at chapter 4 of this same book. Chapter 4 and looking at verse 30. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then there's another one. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 27. If you didn't notice that that passage talked about the end of time, sealed until the end of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it can't be verse 27. It must be verse 22. It is. Sometimes I have bad handwriting. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. It says, Who also, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1.22. And, and then it, the Bible also says that Jesus was sealed. In fact, it indicates that you should listen to him because he was sealed. And maybe we could say, in light of that, that in the end of time, 
God is going to ask the world to go searching for sealed people to learn from them. For him, for him hath God the Father sealed. I honestly forgot that reference. Let's look at it for a minute. John 6. John 6 and verse 27. It says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Where should you go looking for the bread of life? From Jesus. And why from Jesus? Because he's been sealed. Would that be relevant to the end of verse history? Where should you go looking for truth? Well, from a certain class. And why from that certain class? Because they're sealed. What I've proved to you, perhaps, is that the Holy Spirit is the seal of God. But I really haven't proven that to you. Not one passage we looked at said the Holy Spirit was the seal of God. All the passages we looked at indicated that the Holy Spirit is the agent of the sealing. That the Holy Spirit is the one that seals us. And it really isn't so that the first people to be sealed are sealed in the end of time. There have been persons sealed. This could get much more complex than I could unravel in an hour. So I'm going to skip something. For fear I'll never get done with it. But the thought I want to develop with you is how to harmonize some ideas that we believe that don't seem to mesh. Like the seal of God is the Sabbath and the seal of God is settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that you can't be moved. And that the seal of God is not received while you have one spot or stain upon your character. And these passages in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, where the Holy Spirit is connected with the seal of God. Let me help you with just a few ideas. When we say the Sabbath is a sign, we have a more biblical support that way. That's how we go get at the seal thing, right? We go, the Sabbath is a sign, and then circumcision was a sign and a seal, and, we, and this is our process. Sabbath is sign, circumcision is sign, circumcision is seal, so Sabbath is seal. And it's okay, in a way. But the word seal has a couple different meanings. Um, you might say that I um, sealed you, but you wouldn't really say that I signed you. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? Um, a, a seal can be a sign, but a sealing process is not quite the same as a signing process. The, really, we don't think of signing processes. Although there is one in the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 1 where the book of Revelation was sent and signified 
are turned into symbols, for example, is what it said. I have to get used to using this microphone because I'm used to talking with more intonation, but I feel like if I talk with my energy that it's, it's going to explode and it'll be a problem. That's what I feel like. Um, let me review what we've looked at so far, and then we'll look at a few more ideas. We've looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that seals us. The Holy Spirit seals us into the day of redemption, that God has given us his Holy Spirit, and that was the earnest or the promise of what's going to come, which is what a seal is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. I want to take a familiar passage and add some meaning to it for you. How many of you are, are at least vaguely familiar with what you find in verses 12 or 20 in this chapter? Can I see your hands? 12 or 20 in this chapter? Okay, there's like 20 hands. How many of you have a, vaguely an idea of what's between verses 13 and 19? That was one hand, two hands. Okay. I would like that you would know that also. I'd like that. Ezekiel chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 12. The verses before are about God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt by great power and might, and he led them out. Verse 12, Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. The Sabbath is a sign of what? That's a very important idea. The Sabbath is a sign of sanctification, and it was given to the people who left, who were pulled out of Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. But by the way, when was the Sabbath given to God's church again? It was when they were pulled, I mean again, I, I was too ambiguous, I'll tell you what I was looking for. It was when they were pulled together out of Babylon to form the Advent movement in preparation for going again into Canaan. It really was the same time as far as the metaphors between the two stories. Verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Have we been reading last period about some of those statements? We have. Has God given also to our people some more statutes and judgments about how to live like he gave to them back then at that time through Moses? And how did he give them to us? It was through Ellen White. Yeah, the testimonies. Verse 14. But I wrought for my name's sake. It doesn't tell about Moses' prayer, but Moses argued God's character or his name in his prayer. And why did God answer Moses' prayer? Because of that argument. That's what it says here. I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them. Did we read about that in the book of Jude? I'd like you just to see it. The whole Bible is really connected, 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 connected. 
the same people saved out of Egypt are destroyed here. Verse 16, because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths. So when God raised up that great Advent movement, he gave them the Sabbath. But did they receive the Sabbath? Only a minority of them. And that's the same kind of idea of what happened to this body. Verse 17. Nevertheless, mine eye spared them from destroying them. Well, we read about the other prayer that led to this. Neither did I make an end to them in the wilderness, but I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourself with their idols. I'd leave this for your study. I have said it last time, and this is where we've seen the evidence. It is possible for a generation to be so wicked and delinquent that God will reject a generation in his church. But many people have not understood how it works. They've thought when he rejects that wicked generation, he rejects the church. But it's very clear to me from my study that what he rejects is the generation. And what does he say to the children? Don't do like your fathers. Verse 19, I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm not just the God of your fathers, I'm the God of you, the children. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and hollow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now, what kind of sign is the Sabbath? We read it earlier. It's a sign of sanctification. I'd like to talk to you about why the Sabbath was chosen for that sign, and that will help us deal with the seal of God business. When the Roman Catholic Church attacked the Ten Commandments, they attacked the Fourth Commandment. What was the other commandment they attacked? It was the second. Maybe you would notice you would be observant enough to notice that these two commandments together are more than half of the Ten Commandments by volume. This is the bulk of information inside the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, is it perfect? And, and, and what's its impact on the soul? It converts the soul. Well, what is it about this Ten Commandments that converts the soul? It's not just the Fourth Commandment. A lot of it's in the second one, and that came first. You know what you find in the second commandment? The most concise and simple version of the gospel found anywhere in the scripture. In the second commandment, it says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Just from that short sentence, let me ask you a few questions. Do people that keep the commandments earn their way to heaven? No, God gives them mercy. Do those that have a love of God without keeping the commandments, are they on their way to heaven? No, God requires obedience to his commandments. Isn't that simple? It's the gospel. God shows mercy unto those that is, is it enough to have a legal religion? No, you must love God. It's just one sentence. 
And it's the whole thing. Mercy unto thousands of generations of those that love God and keep his commandments. And that just wouldn't go in the mystery of iniquity. The whole commandment had to go. The fourth commandment is special in another way. God didn't just say, keep the Sabbath. He could have said that. But he gave some rationale for it. He talked about creation. And there is a connection between the Sabbath and creation. And don't say, duh, follow me for a minute. <laughs> what I mean is that if I had here a Phillips screwdriver, that Phillips screwdriver could be used for a lot of things. You could tap the microphone and make funny noises. You could, it looks like someone did something like that on this desk. You, you could go like this and make holes or little dents in the desk. You could bop disobedient children on the head. I'm not recommending that either. But none of these things are the thing the screwdriver was made for. Who has a right to say what it was made for? The guy that made it. Yeah, it is the one that made it. That's exactly right. Creation comes with the right to define purpose and meaning. It's a real simple idea. If you make something, you make it for a reason. And if you made it for a reason, isn't that its reason? <laughs> Do you follow that idea? Being creator gives God a, the right, the only right to define your purpose. If you didn't make yourself, can you define your purpose? Existence does not give you a right to define your purpose. The screwdriver can't say what it's for. <coughs> that last sentence didn't help my thought. <laughs> but you did explain atheism. I really want you to make this connect. God's creatorship is the reason he has a right to give meaning to what he creates. It's because he made the seventh day that he has a right to say that it's for holy purposes only. No one can say it's for something else because they didn't make it. That's right. Now the Sabbath has, or can have, two types of holiness. I also feel like I talked about this at Advent Hope. Did I talk about this? None of you are raising your hand, I don't remember. The Sabbath has two types of holiness. What I mean by that is that it is holy. Whether you use this day to listen to sermons and to lift your heart to God in prayer, or whether you use it to um, shuffle cards at a casino, either way, the day is holy. But besides the fact that it is holy, you're commanded to keep it holy. It has one type of holiness that defines the way it is by God's purpose, and another type that refers to how you relate to it in respect to its purpose. God said it's holy by purpose, and you can defile it by the way that you relate to it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes. So a Sabbath can be defiled and holy at the same time, defiled by you and holy by creation. That's why God made it a symbol of sanctification. Because it's the same as you. When you gave your life to Jesus, when you surrendered your heart to God, God set you apart for a holy purpose. 
He sanctified you at that point in the first sense, like he did with the Sabbath. That is, you were set apart for holy purpose, and in that respect, you are sanctified if you are a professor. That's why you can read in the New Testament some kind of odd things, like the introduction to 1 Corinthians, where it's written to those that are sanctified, but you only have to read the book to know it isn't. In what sense were they sanctified? The same way as the Sabbath was, God set them aside for holy purpose. In what sense were they not sanctified? They didn't treat themselves. They didn't live in respect to the way God had set them apart with respect to their purpose. Sanctification is living with respect to the purpose that you already have. I don't mean anything like that if you don't do it that you're still going to go to heaven because you're sanctified. That would just be totally bogus. It's not so. You're under greater condemnation for defiling yourself. That's what I mean. So what we have in the Sabbath is practice of treating a day as special and holy because God said to because he created it for that purpose until it suddenly dawns on us at some point in our life that that's us that once we gave our lives to God, we became that special person that was set aside for his purpose, and we need to live always that way. Amen. The Sabbath is a special sign of sanctification because it's like you. Now I want to go to another thought. Look with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 13. It says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. That's a verse, you were. I was about to say something witty, and I don't think it's a good idea to do that when you're preaching. Amen. I don't think it is, and I think you should know that. Amen. I don't think so. Do you see that this verse sort of looks like a Presbyterian verse? <laughs> do you know what I mean by that? The predestination idea? When did God choose you according to this verse? From the beginning, I'd like to modify it by looking at on what basis he chose you. Verse 13, through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. That is, God in his foreknowledge looked forward to see who would have two qualities. That they would believe the truth that he was teaching them, and that they would allow the spirit to sanctify them. That class are the ones that are chosen or elect. And they were chosen from the very beginning. God has set this to his seal. He knows those that are his. But the thought I want to pull out, especially for our talk tonight, is that sanctification is the special work of the Holy Spirit. 
I guess you could try to prove it with a ton of verses that would all kind of allude to it, but none of them would quite say it. But to me, it's self-evident if you just think about what you already know about what the Holy Spirit does in the life. Just this verse sort of shows it by calling it sanctification of the Spirit. Paul didn't only mention it. Look with me at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. It's almost the same idea, just by a different prophet. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Elect. What's another word for elect? Chosen. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Doesn't that help you with 2 Thessalonians 2? You just ought to know about that verse for future reference. How are we elect? Through the... Foreknowledge. Now, isn't that very helpful? It's not the same thing as foredoing or foremaking. It's foreknowledge. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. How? Through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a lot there, but I'm just trying to pull out that one little thought again. It's the same one. Sanctification is the special work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Sabbath is a sign of sanctification. Sabbath is a sign of sanctification, and sanctification is the special work of the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath is a sign of sanctification, which is the special work of the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath is a sign of the special work of the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath is a sign of the special work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the special work of the Holy Spirit called in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians? It's the sealing work. The Sabbath is a sign of the special work of the Holy Spirit in sealing His people through sanctification. Yes. The Sabbath is a sign of the special work of the Holy Spirit of sealing the people of God, that is, of sanctifying them. What we read in Peter was that God chose the people through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Those things shouldn't surprise us because we read in some testimony somewhere maybe 4th Bible Commentary, page 1164, and maybe not, that the sealing is a settling into the truth both intellectually and spiritually so that you cannot be moved. Which would, of course, be quoting from somewhere else. I hope that it's a concrete idea. I just know I lose a lot of people somewhere in this process. So I'm just going to say it again with a little different things. If, if I were going to speak for myself, I wouldn't say the Sabbath is the seal of God. I wouldn't unless I meant the sign-like seal that circumcision was. But I wouldn't mean the Sabbath is the sealing. I wouldn't mean that. 
I would mean the Sabbath is a sign of that special work of the Holy Spirit, which is sanctification. Sanctification is the special work of the Holy Spirit, and while you're being sanctified, you are being sealed. When you are sanctified, then you are sealed. In other words, when the work is done is when you're sealed. And so the seal of God, when we talk about the servants have not yet been sealed, what we mean is that they have not yet been completely sanctified. That's the Revelation 7 thing. But Revelation 10 tells us it will happen because it says in the days when the seventh angel shall begin to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. Yeah, it's going to happen. The sealing is going to be finished. So what I was saying is, I wouldn't say the Sabbath is the seal of God unless I clarified what I meant. The Sabbath is the sign of the sealing. Only in that respect is it the seal of God. Or if you wanted to say it as close to standard as possible, you'd say the Sabbath is the seal of God in that it is the sign of the special work of sanctification that God is doing in the heart. Why? Because it's a holy day and we are to be a holy people. We're, we learn in that day how to keep ourselves holy, what it means to treat as holy someone who's been set aside as holy for God's purposes. Turn with me in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. I don't want to put anyone down, and I'm not going to. I just want to know, is there anyone here that is studying with or is a member of the shepherd's rod? And that's not quite what I meant, but I'm glad to know <laughs> that you're helping them. Um, Ezekiel 9 is, is one of their passages. As an aside to what we're talking about, Ezekiel 9 is quoted in the fifth line of the testimonies. And this is a favorite passage with the shepherd's rod. It would be a trick of the devil if, because of that, it wasn't a favorite passage with you. Does that make sense to you what I just said? Yes. Yeah. That would be a, a dirty trick. If the devil can take something God made and make it dirty by using it. Did he do that with the rainbow? Yeah. Well, he can't. I mean, he did, but he can't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yes, we do. <laughs> Ezekiel 9 is a passage we ought to understand. Looking at verse 3, skipping introduction of the writer's ink horn and the men with the swords. And the glory of the God of Israel has gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's ink horn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, 
and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. While we cry aloud and spare not, we're not doing this in an angry way. We're crying, we really were very concerned about the sins. And it would really not be a useful thing to preach to group A about the sins of group B and to group B about the sins of group A. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? So it wouldn't do any good for me to cry aloud and spare not to tell you about the sins that you're not likely to be involved in. But we ought to be very concerned if we want to receive the seal of God with the sins that are in the church. That's important. I mean, it's, isn't that the main, one of the main points of Ezekiel 9? We really ought to be concerned. It ought to sadden us what we see going on. It will sadden us if it doesn't anger us or bemuse us or if we don't make light of it or distance ourselves from it. If we, it will. Ezekiel 9, and looking at verse 6. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. That's hard to read. That when the judgments come upon our church, are children too young to receive them? then children aren't too young to be taught the truth. Amen. Children aren't too young to be taught to obey. And to be taught, if nothing else, to be sad about their own sins. Ezekiel, watching this vision, had heard God say not to destroy anyone upon whom is the mark. But when he watched the slaughter progress, he seems to have forgotten that. It looked like it was getting everybody, and he asked an interesting question. Let me see if I can find it. Verse 8. And it came to pass while they were slaying them, and I was left, that I fell upon my face and cried. Was he happy to see the wicked people slain? And said, All Lord God, Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? I mean, residue and remnant are the same thing. That's the, that question should make you think if it looked like that when Ezekiel was watching in vision. I'm just going to tell you that question isn't answered until chapter 14. Look there with me at chapter 14. Chapter 14 is where God answers the question about this business. And where God establishes the limits of the power of intercession. Ezekiel chapter 14. We're looking at verse... We could look at verse 21. Mm, that's not far enough back. Go back to verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it men and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, 
They shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Noah, Daniel, and Job are three interesting people to mention together. They have some things in common. God said about Noah, Behold a perfect and upright man. He said about Job, Behold a perfect and upright man, one who escheweth evil. I don't know how to pronounce that word. And with Daniel, unlike most of the spiritual men of the Old Testament, you do not find a single record of one of his sins. He did sin. We don't know when or how. But so did Daniel and so did Job. I mean, so did Noah and so did Job. But here's a point where there's no record in his life of any sin. And though he's in the highest political office, under the greatest scrutiny by jealous men, when they evaluate him, not only do they say that he's faultless, but they don't expect they're going to be able to find any fault, no matter how much they did. You know that's incredible. Even they at least would have been optimistic. If they, Usually optimistic people are the only ones who get that high in life. But the character of Daniel was such that they knew that they wouldn't find any fault with him, no matter how far they would dig, except in relation to his obedience to the law of God. I'm just paraphrasing the first few verses of Daniel 6. That was Daniel, similar to Job and similar to Noah. And God says in the last days, if these three men were in the land, they would deliver neither son nor daughter they would but deliver their own soul by their righteousness. What kind of people is God looking for in the last day? A high level of holiness. One that corresponds to the seal of God, which is a sign of sanctification, which is the special work of the Holy Spirit. There's something else those three men have in common in the Bible. The Bible does not indicate that Noah's wife and sons and their wives were especially holy people. It doesn't say they were or that they weren't. It says that Noah was and God spared him and his family. Also, Job, we read it earlier today, those that were here for both sessions, the Bible doesn't indicate that Job's friends were particularly holy people, but why were they spared? Because it, yeah, because of Job. And in Daniel, Daniel 2, Daniel opens right up with the wise men of Babylon owing their skin to Daniel. The Bible says in the end of time, God is looking for the same kind of men, Noah and Daniel and Job. It's going to be the same in that, that those people are going to be delivered for their righteousness, but it's going to be different in that they're not going to deliver anyone else but themselves. Verse 21. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. Verse 22. Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you and you will see their way and their doings. 
and you will be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem. What would comfort Ezekiel? Or us? We would see the people that were left over after the slaughtering process was done. Verse 23, And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. It's going to look like a terrible thing. But what's going to comfort us? When we see what's left over, we're going to see that it was worth it. The purity of a people that God has set aside for himself by a seal of God. The seal of God. The sign of that seal is the Sabbath. And the seal is the special work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying the heart. What time is it right now? And we end at six? Is it 6.15? Good. Okay. Um, Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I once heard a sermon preached from this chapter in my home little church in Amity, Arkansas. I didn't appreciate it. And partly as a result of that sermon, the speaker was never again invited to speak there. I had nothing to do with that. I was just 21 years old. I was not part of administration. Verse 21, it says, How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves gifts. And what were they like thieves? They like the money. From verse 21, is it possible that a faithful group of God's people could become harlot-like? It is possible, and even described in this very passage, a faithful city becomes a harlot. I don't think that's what happened to the papacy from my study of church history. It doesn't look to me like it ever was a faithful city. That hasn't happened to the Adventist church. I heard a bunch of mumbling no's. Personally, I think it has. But you don't have to believe me. In fact, you shouldn't just believe what people say, especially if it doesn't make any sense. But I want to show you the part of this passage that wasn't preached on by that man. It starts in verse 25, or verse 24. It's a pretty sound. (laughs) Listen, verse 24. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. When I read that verse, I catch a feeling like God is about to burst and destroy 
this harlot-like, used-to-be-faithful city. It's not really what he's saying, but that's the feeling I got when I read it the first time. Verse 25, And I will turn my hand upon thee, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin. If you ever read this passage in a quiet place by yourself, it ought to make you cry. How does God avenge himself on the devil? By purely purging away the dross of the people that have been corrupted. Verse 26, And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. That's incredible. That God could take a city that went from faithful to being described even by him as a harlot. And before he's done with it, what is it? It's a faithful city. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 20, 23. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23 and looking at verse 1. I really am not ashamed to cry in front of you, but it's hard to talk when you do that. But those are very touching passages that ought to have meaning to us. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Just notice, who scatters them in verse 1? It's the pastors. Now look at verse 2. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away. Who scatters them in verse 2? It's the pastors. Now look at verse 3. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them. Who drove them away in verse 3? That is very interesting. It has a parallel elsewhere in Scripture. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians, in chapter 2, we're beginning somewhere around verse 8. We'll start in verse 9. Speaking of that wicked, the man of sin, it says, Even him, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 9, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. For those of you taking notes, I'm about to give you another list of scriptures, seven of them that we're not going to look up, except we just looked up this one and this is one of them. The other six are in Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 16 
I forgot the other two. And what these passages have in common is they're all about miracles in the end of time. There are seven New Testament passages that talk about miracles in the end of time. And unless you count Acts, which I'm not counting, it talks about the point of the Spirit, all of them associate miracles in our day with deception. You should just know that. 13 definitely is one of them. Thank you. And 19 might be the other. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 10. And with all deceivableness of, of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not a love of the truth, that they might be saved. In verse 9 and 10, who's deceiving the people? Satan through the papacy. Now look at verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie that they might all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Who, who deceives them in verse 8 and 9 and 10? And then God is the one that deceives them next? I want to help put these ideas together, the Jeremiah and 2 Thessalonians idea, and it will be our last point for tonight. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah 51 is the precursor of Revelation 18. Much of the content of Revelation 18, the ideas and the order of it, is borrowed from Jeremiah 51. Revelation 18 is the call out of Babylon. We're going to begin in verse 5 because it's relevant to what we've been saying. For Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, listen, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. In the context of the call to Babylon, that ought to be very interesting to you. God is about to condemn Babylon and say, come out. But before he does, he says something about his own land. Is his own land full of sin? Well, he says it is. Is he calling people out of that too? He makes a distinct contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem, even in the context of the pulling the people out of Babylon. Look at the next verse. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. If you've read Revelation 18, that's familiar to you. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her and that you don't receive of her. Yeah. But look at verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup. Now, isn't that part familiar to us? It's all over Revelation. In the where? In the Lord's hand. That made all the earth drunken. What is the cup doing in the Lord's hand? If I could just put these ideas together for you. Jesus said he came to the earth for judgment, that those which see might be made blind and those which are blind might see. He is going to use Babylonian error and the miracles of demons to deceive Adventists with a delusion stronger than what they're ready to take 
and they will be taken out until this church is again pure. And he's going to use the power of the being purified church to pull his faithful out of Babylon until it can be said of Babylon that she is the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. How many of the false teachers will be in Babylon at the end? Every single one of them. And if Jerusalem is a harlot-like organization now, is it like that till the end? She hasn't been rejected of the Lord of God, but he does have a plan to restore to her counselors as at the first until again she is called a holy city. Our part is to let the Holy Spirit do its special work of setting us apart for holy purpose, and he will make sure that we receive the seal of God. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for that beautiful promise of Isaiah 1, that you would purely purge away our dross, that you would take away all our tin. I claim that promise of Malachi 3, that you will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, that you would purify the sons of Levi until they could offer to you an offering in righteousness. I ask only that you would do those gifts that you've already promised to us. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.